Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Guys, One Book. I am Brian. I'm Tim. And Tim is here as well. And uh, today we are going to be talking about Notes from the Underground by Fedor Dostoevsky. Mm. Um, this was not originally planned. Uh, I had to switch it up. Uh, you gave up is the right term. I did. <laughs> I gave up. I started uh, the Sinclair Lewis book, It Can't Happen Here. It's a novel about a potential fascist uh, regime taking over in America. But I got like three chapters in and like just couldn't do it anymore because it was like in written in the 1930s and had all this 1930 slang and jargon and I just I was in a weird place a few weeks ago. Well, we're all in weird places nowadays with COVID-19 ravaging the world. But um, I was in a weird place, didn't know quite what I wanted to read, and this was on our list. This is what I had picked, and I started it and was like, this is gonna take me forever, even if it's a shorter book. It's still I, I had to switch it up. So of course. You know, in these dark and tumultuous times, I have to pick something existential, so... Yeah, Russian literature <laughs> is always a happy place to go, so I'm glad you you had that thought. Yes, of course. And uh, Dostoevsky is a famous author. I have never read anything written by him. How do you say his first name? Fyodor? Fyodor. Fyodor? <laughs> I like don't the care. Russian Theodore. The Russian guy. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's, uh, yeah, Fyodor. Excuse know. me. Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, I never read anything by him, and this is, I think, one of his, sh- his shorter books, because I don't... I'm oh, not, yeah. Yeah, the other ones are, like, super long. I read Crime and Punishment in high school. Wow. That was really good. Were you forced to read it in high school? It was part of our, like, senior, yeah, And did you class. like it? Oh, yeah, I actually thought it was really good. Really? hmm <sighs> Okay. <laughs> I, I am a little surprised, but... It's famous. I, I know, but, like... I don't know. People aren't reading Mark Twain anymore, right? What? I mean, I mean, Huckleberry I mean, Finn is in like every high school. Kids are. Curriculum. Kids are. Yeah, in school, but like nobody reads it for fun. I I just feel like there's maybe maybe I got uh, you know I was disappointed over the Sinclair Lewis book and and this one also was very particular to the written towards the times, of course, and it just I don't know made me second guess reading older literature. Let mm. me put it that way. You don't have the attention span for the old stuff. You don't respect old lessons or your elders. You're just a millennial. You <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I like... This book was old and I liked it. Okay. 1864. I, I know. Wow. I did not realize that. it was that old. But... Yeah, no, I liked it too. I mean, up to a point. Uh, it was. I mean, basically, it didn't have much of a plot. It was... Written from this uh, first-person perspective of a, a narrator that we can assume is maybe unreliable. Uh, is it semi-autobiographical? Like, do you think? I don't think so. I think maybe because Dostoevsky spent a lot, some years in Siberia in a, in a labor camp, so maybe that made him a little more, um, I don't know, disenchanted with life um, and maybe led him down some of these darker thoughts that he... Uh, wrote that the narrator believes so much of the book is in the narrator's like mind though right it feels like it might be partly dostoevsky's like own perspective oh yeah thoughts. I mean, it could be but um but yeah but then, so basically the book is broken down into two parts the first part is i would say maybe one long mo- monologue by the narrator about life he says that man cannot strive for a utopia society because man is always going to want to break out and 
do whatever he wants to do from his own free will and not conform to any anybody's ideas of what is rational or logical to do. And also, um, yeah, I think that sums it up, right? Anything else about the it's, first half? It's a know? lot of uh, philosophical jargon. Yes. <laughs> there yes. are some tidbits here and here, here and there that I thought were kind of interesting, but by and large, all the sentences kind of, it was like one long run on sentence yeah. that was like, the essence of consciousness is the free will epitome of logical, <laughs> you know, just like a lot of it is like, does this even make sense? Like, does anyone understand this? Yeah. There were some, yes, the sentences did run long, and there was a lot of, like, you know, inserted uh, phrases within a phrase and stuff that to clarify. And it was, it, but it was stream of consciousness. I thought you liked stream of consciousness. To a point. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, like, is he being high-minded? Like, does any of this, just because I don't understand it all doesn't mean it's not valuable. <laughs> I'll be fair in admitting that. But, like, at a certain point, when someone's just rambling this much, it's like... Is there value in it mm. at all? Okay. I don't know. But I think like, and the, uh, but but I like the first part because it was more philosophical. The second part then is, I I think like the first part was when he was like forty years old or so is when he said he was, and I think the second part was maybe when he was younger, and working he was working at job and he and then it explained more stories about like a few days it seemed like in his life where he would be in his apartment and then go and get money from his friend, his boss or something for a coat to buy. And then he, then he would meet up with some of his old school house, schoolhouse friends. And then they were having a get together with one of their common acquaintances that because for, because they were going off somewhere. And so he joined them and then he goes to a brothel and meets a prostitute. And then she later comes over to his, his raggedy apartment. And that's pretty much the second it, half of the book. It's pretty thin on plot. It is. <laughs> But all the same, all the while, he, the narrator, is I would say practicing what he preaches, right? Practicing in what sense? We see him in these situations with his uh, ex schoolmates or with the prostitute, where he's talking about life, and he 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 also tries to confront this one officer who disrespected okay. him once, yeah. and he follows this officer. To just to try to bump into him in the street or something, and the officer doesn't even really know he exists. I like the second half of the book more than the first half. You did? I think because it's not as much trying to be high-minded, it's more just like a few days in the life of this guy, and he is just so neurotic. It's kind of hilarious. Mm. And the fact that it was written in like 1864, mm. and it's 2020 today, and there are still bits and pieces of his thoughts that I'm like, oh yeah, I can kind of like relate to that, yeah. you know? Interesting. Just like him... Have you ever been in a state of like overthinking stuff or, you know, having these runaway thoughts? Like he really takes that to the extreme. He does. And then I think he even acts on them in like, especially when confronting the other, other young men that he went to school with, he like thumbs his nose at them and like insults them. And then later, then when they go leave the restaurant and go to a bar or something, then he's trying to follow them to try to gain back their favor. And so it just seems so, so, um, like schizophrenic and and back and forth and and not making up his mind he he seems kind of annoying as a person Mm -hmm. in general like if you were to spend time with him because he's so much like he's not really in in the moment at all he's just like running through this narrative in his mind of like you know making assumptions about other people making all these different judgments he can be very like self-deprecating throughout the book Mm -hmm. but also um you know speaking negatively of other people so correct me if i'm wrong but i think that what makes the second half 
of the book even remotely enjoyable i think is because you it is prefaced by the first half like you you could have easily flipped the two halves right mm -hmm. if you had the second half where it's actually a story of about a few days or a month in this guy's life and then you read about this, the all the ramblings in the second half, I think it wouldn't have quite as good of impact. But how does it tie together? Like, what philosophical ideas could tie into the day-to-day -day life scenes in the book? Oh, it's like, it's about raging against the absurdity of your existence. Mm -hmm. Of, like, he kept going on and saying how two twice two equals four, or two plus two equals four. Mm -hmm. And then that is a mathematical and logical absolute fact. Mm -hmm. But man in his in his desire for free will and 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 um, control over his own destiny will strive against all that logic of two twice two equals four and so then you see him like in the second half of the book going through all these obsessions in his mind over how he's going to get back at his classmates or how he's going to get back at that officer or what's he going to say to the he's worried about the prostitute coming by his house or something because he gave her his address and now then he's fretting over his apartment and all this stuff but then like when the time comes he like does something completely i don't know crazy and like off, like not even what he was thinking about like he he has a plan sort of and then he just goes in the opposite direction because that's his choice and then and that's what i think the first half is about is man's choice yeah so he's pushing back against the whole like all the enlightenment ideas about rationality about like 19th 20th century ideas that people will act in their reasonable favor but he's saying like really like actually we're drawn to suffering in some senses we don't always do something rational and yeah like you said the absurdist element of it all right and that's a that's a good point too is because he does talk about how suffering can be a source of enjoyment at for him because he realized this is like as low as you can get when you're when you're really down in the dumps you know and everything i think this does tie into crime and punishment a bit just you see how his philosophy will um you know come through in that and like nietzsche as well talks mm -hmm. a lot about i don't know much of his work personally but like i know he talks about how suffering makes you stronger and that sort of thing and we're all drawn generally to like oh let's feel good let's pursue pleasure mm -hmm. but a lot of people also for the counter argument will be like you know overcoming challenges is a positive thing and makes us right. feel good in a sense too where do you where do you fall on that whole oh you know uh <laughs> okay so what i will like i definitely like pleasure like you know you can be like epicurean hedonistic to an extent but right. like obviously like we all need challenges and things to overcome because if life were just too easy and simple that wouldn't be very fun right right and that's that's kind of the point i focus on in my life is the fact that you can't have enjoyment in the finer things in life unless you have an appreciation that like of the dark side and, and of going through hard times and troubles and getting through knowing that you can get through hard times helps soften the blow when you're in bad times because you know you can get through them like we are now like just staying at home and just you know not having sports to watch but this is all something we need to do to get through this and then when everything can come back, we'll appreciate it that much more, mm -hmm. you know? I guess I think of it like people who run. I don't like running, but, <laughs> you know, people who run, like, it's not really fun, but, like, you know, you suffer in the moment, but then you're proud that you, like, accomplished this goal of, like, finishing a marathon or something mm -hmm. like that. You know what I mean? So you never gotten a runner's high? 
<laughs> no, have you? I think I did once. And I, it was only like I ran like two miles or three miles like years ago. And I felt I felt like in the middle of it, like I could just keep going forever. Uh-huh. I, I mean, it clearly didn't last. But, but that was the only time, just once. Yeah, I don't like running. I don't know. <laughs> I like long walks. That's yeah, fun. There you go. Um, anyway, we got sidetracked. <laughs> so yeah, I just, okay, here's the thing though. Like, he's got some interesting ideas. He's pushing back against maybe some mainstream thoughts about men being rational, about how suffering is bad, but is it? And then, but like, does he have to be like so annoying and pedantic? Like, his character is like unlikable, right? Oh, you, that, I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree. This is, this, I mean, so this is considered one of the first existential novels or, or stories. And, like, this character is completely unlikable. And then I also think about The Stranger by Albert Camus. Yeah, I was just thinking that about that. That character is completely unlikable. Well, oh, maybe, really? I, I, at least I didn't like him when I read The Stranger. I was going to contrast him, though, because he seems so, and it's been a long time, but, like, he seems so, like, passive about everything. Right. Just, like, oh, He was my. so detached. Yeah, but, like, when... To me, it's easier to read his perspective than this uh, guy who's overanalyzing every single thing. He's, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, all right. They are very different characters. I will give you that. But it's still, like, to me, I need to reread The Stranger is what I need to do. Because mm-hmm. I read it a long time ago. And, and I will grant you that. But to me, it just felt like, here are these two, like, big existential novels and why why do they have to be like unlikable characters i think camus argued that his novel wasn't existential or that it was like oh, absurdist yeah, or something i know, I know. camus everything camus was too high on himself wasn't he? <laughs> he was detached <laughs> yeah but no like why can't they have an existential novel about i don't know somebody likable or why do all philosophical people have to use like big words and long sentences <laughs> Can you just dumb it down for us? <laughs> Use picture books. <laughs> you know. Well, I think part of it was this. This it was written in you know 150 years ago. So I would say that's one reason why maybe it, we don't quite follow some of the stuff he talks about. Too. Yeah, I just wonder about his personal tone writing it, like what he thought of himself, his character characterization of himself. Like I said, I feel like he was self-deprecating at times, like. Maybe it was intentional just mm-hmm. to show him how extreme he could be with his like silly thoughts and that sort of thing. Right. Because yeah, yeah and, and I know I keep going back to crime punishment. The last thing I'll say is like oh, he talks about how um, and this is minor spoilers like early on, but like he makes a plan to kill this like richer woman if I remember right because she's like not a good person and by killing her he rationalizes that he can help all these other people, but the whole book has all these themes about how like. You know, is it what's the morality of like you know, killing this one person to help other people, and him trying to like wrap his mind around it? I don't know. It's yeah. an interesting. No, that makes sense. Exercise. It's it's like um. Oh, what's that uh, philosophy uh, idea about doing whatever is in the greatest interest? Oh, of, of utilitarian. Utilitarianism. Yeah. yeah, it's about like. Should a doctor, if somebody is sick in the hospital and their organs are a match for, to help save like four or five other people and they're an organ donor, should the doctor just, you know, let the person die so that they can use the organs to save four or five other people when this person's sick already or something like yeah. that? Yeah. I feel like those, 
those thought exercises can be interesting, but they're also so like perfect that oh, there's four people ready with these or you know what well, I mean? Well, that's the whole point. Okay, well let's okay let's make a more interesting like modern day thing. So there's we're going through this pandemic right now, right? Uh-huh. Like society, the world is, and um, so like there are a lot of older people on like ventilators and struggling, but it's like um, so there's all these government measures that they're doing like lockdowns and that sort of thing. So some people are wondering like are the economic issues we're facing and the um, the consequences of shutting down things that affect the economy, is that hurting more people than, like, these older people? There's a lot of philosophy and morality involved in that, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like that's been a very interesting topic to see how, how politicized that conversation has gotten. Right. Um, it's not an easy thing to think through. Well, I mean... I don't know. Some countries are doing better than others. Correct. <laughs> Some up countries are doing better than others. Solutions. I just feel like the economy is going to be terrible no matter what right now. And if we can stop people from being sick and dying, even if they're old, I think that's what we got to do. Yeah. But, that's the whole like... It is. I think it is yeah. an interesting debate though. It's not the hypocritical, hypocritical, the, hi- the Hippocratic oath that doctors take. That's like you have to help patients. Is that part of it? I don't remember. First, do no harm. Yeah. So right. you gotta save all the right. old people. Oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we'll see where, where that goes with all this COVID stuff. Yeah, Dostoevsky would love all the suffering <laughs> that's going on right now. So he's just a bad person. Yeah. Oh man. So overall, I mean, like. Is there anything you just didn't like the first part, huh? Yeah, like I said, the first part was just a little too much. Mm-hmm. Stream of consciousness, run on sentences, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Uh, I wish it was more of the second part where he just there was some humor to it. I think too when he's talking about like <laughs> just to like give a few details, like going to see his friends, like his friends were an hour late and like they didn't tell him, and then he wants to go fight this dude, and then he's just like super drunk. It's kind of funny in part, <laughs> you know. When you said. Oh, I, I agree. It's like that. It's got that absurdist humor of watching someone just totally embarrass himself or just totally, I don't know, awkward and neurotic. Right. Um, so what was the point of the prostitute towards the end that he goes and see this? He goes and sees this woman at the brothel and then is kind of like, hey, like you shouldn't do this with your life. Like you can do all these better things or whatever. And then he gives her his address and then she comes to see him and he's like, he's upset about it yeah like what was the point well because he's that i mean he's 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 that crazy he's he back and forth with yeah, his all, yeah constantly and and after because he, he gave it he gave her his address and like in that moment where he felt like he was making a big impression on her and wanted to feel important and then when he got back to his apartment and was living there for a couple of days afterwards he realized that like oh this is a dumb you know, I'm penniless. Like, if she comes here, she's going to see that I am an insect or lower than an insect and, and not want anything to do with me. So instead of being rejected <laughs> by her from after she sees the squalor that he lives in, he is just pushing her away and doesn't want to even make himself vulnerable to the fact that uh, he brought her out there in the first place. Yeah, but the part I thought was cool is that even after he was, like, pretty awful to her when she actually came... Um, she, I think, hugged him after yeah. he had his whole rant and Oh, meltdown. he had a breakdown. Yeah. That's just it. Like, he, he did not handle the situation well. No. It wasn't like she showed up and he was like, 
why'd you come here? Get away. Or like, he just went on this whole big long monologue about like, oh, you know, you shouldn't have come because I am such a miserable person. As you can see, I live in such filth and blah, 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 blah. And I am just so sad and miserable. And like, then he was crying. And then yeah. so like, she pitied him. And, and so like, yeah. then she realized that like, this isn't worth it. But the fact that she showed some compassion, I thought was a cool part of the book because like she could have just been like wow you're a huge jerk like you you know you told me to come here and you said all these things and now you're doing a complete 180 but i don't know i feel like he was trying to say something about that action about i guess all right so but but here's what i thought think Mm -hmm. about that then so if he was if dostoevsky was trying to show that the prostitute liza had some compassion for the narrator at the end Mm -hmm. I feel like he could have made that that um, theme of like the other people being nice a little more if like his schoolmates were a little nicer to him, or that other people like in the novel were were nicer too. You know what I mean? Like the thing with the schoolmates though is like they were all probably in their early twenties or uh-huh. just like younger dudes who were kind of trying to like show off in certain ways to each other or like. About, I think you're ra- trying yeah. to rationalize your. No, I, this makes I, sense. Um, you know, like younger dudes in like this like certain Russian culture of the time, like they're all trying to like appear a certain way and you know be alpha macho whatever. Um, and the whole time during the interactions, he's like talking about how he hates them, then he hates things about himself, that sort of thing. So I don't think there's much of a point he was trying to make with those interactions, you know, other than just. This is life as a young person, young male in Russia at the time. Okay. I mean, maybe. <laughs> share, share your... Well, no, I just felt place. like if he... If, like, I feel like that could have been maybe one thing that Dostoevsky could have shown is that, like, if Liza shows compassion to the narrator and if the schoolmates all showed compassion to him, you could say that the schoolmates showed compassion to him by just, like, having him tag along with their dinner. And so... Maybe maybe that is a point that he was trying to make was that like this narrator is kind of crazy and raging against you know the meaninglessness of existence, but everyone else is kind of like trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and you know at least treat him like a human being. Yeah, when it, he views himself as like lower than an insect or a mouse or whatever, as he said. But it's like that contradictory feeling where he's like he feels intellectually superior than mm-hmm. everyone, but then he also kind of hates himself right. in a lot of ways. Right. So, yeah, this was an interesting book. I'm glad I read it. Um, I kind of picked it on a whim to substitute the other book. <laughs> you should read some, I think, Carmen Punishment. And then I've heard uh, The Brothers Karamazov is like one of the best books of all time. I've heard. But those are long, aren't they? How long is Crime and Punishment, do you know? Uh, it's fairly, it's a decent length, I believe. I think you would like it. Though. 500 pages? That's not too bad. Mm-hmm. 545, that's what it says. I mean, it goes fast. It's like an engaging book. Brothers Karamazov. Mm -hmm. It says 13 hours and 44 minutes reading. Mm. I have no idea what that means. You listen to audiobooks. How long is a typical audiobook? Ooh, it varies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to look that one up. I mean, you can listen on double speed, though, which helps. (laughs) Do you really listen on double speed? Sometimes. Are you able to follow it? It depends. Usually, I'll maybe read along with the ebook and then listen to it. Oh, really? It's like double. It's a twenty-hour audiobook. Com- completely complete immersion, huh? Right. Brothers Karamazov, thirty-seven hours. You can do that, right? 
it's lockdown time. We got time. Well, if this if this COVID lockdown goes into the winter, then I'll probably hit up maybe that. No, I got plenty of other stuff. <laughs> well, do you want to do quotes? Yeah, or? I'll do okay. some quotes. Okay. I mean, all my quotes are from pretty much from the first half of the book because I loved it. Mm. Do you have any other notes? Did you look up anything? Did you happen to you Google or watch on I YouTube watch an a interview U- of Dostoevsky? Yeah. That would be impressive, Tim. Yeah, he did a Fresh Air episode <laughs> with Terry Gross. Um, she's been around that long. No, uh, I did watch a YouTube video. There was this guy made one like 10 years ago that explained some stuff. Huh. It was okay. Did you, did you... Like, I had no idea what he was talking about in the first half about a palace of crystal. Did you see, did you hear that? I don't that? remember that. You don't remember that? No. A palace of crystal? Yeah, or a crystal palace. It sounds like vaguely familiar. Okay. But. I, I thought it was funny because it's this, like the soccer team. Yeah, but the football team. But no, what I read online was that this palace of crystal or crystal palace was um, kind of like a utopian idea by another Russian art, uh, author at the time. And mm-hmm. so Dostoevsky was trying to counter his... Uh, view of basically all what we've been talking about that men men naturally want to strive for the greater good of all parties involved in in society and and you know if we do that then we'll reach this greater higher plane but to me what i took away from his philosophy was like men don't really know what they want Mm. and maybe we want suffering more than people think and that like given the choice between free will and you know, everything be determined, we would prefer to have things determined. Because, yeah, like, there are a lot of quotes that are like, you know, we would couldn't handle the freedom. I thought the whole point was to have freedom of choice and freedom, free will to do whatever right. you want. I'll find some quotes on it. Yeah. Maybe I just didn't, maybe those, those parts of the book just didn't sink in with me. All right, well, I'll just say this one. He says, the whole work of man really seems to consist in nothing but proving to himself every minute that he is a man and not a piano key. And the context of that is just like piano keys are like, you know, nature playing us as like instruments of not having free will. All right. But he's pushing back. Oh, okay. Man, I'll find it. I have a good mm. quote for this, I swear. It would be worse for us if our petulant prayers were answered. Come, try, give any one of us, for instance, a little more independence, untie our hands, widen the spheres of our activity, relax the control, and we, yes, I assure you, we should be begging to be under control again at once. Does that's that just, not sound like someone who is <laughs> anti-free will? Just one little snippet. There were a bunch of things like know. this, though. That's not, the, that's not what I picked up. My, my takeaway is that he's saying we don't really know what we want. And, right. Um, I agree with you yeah. there. We don't know what we want. Man is prone to do things against his own best interests. Mm-hmm. But that is our free will, and we are not going to give that up for some utopia society. Yeah, he's saying, like, even if we end up getting what we want, we're, we end up not being happy. Like, he right. talks about that, yes. right? And he pushes back against reason, rationality, right. because we're fundamentally, like, irrational. Right. So... There's some middle ground that we yeah, agree. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, you can do a quote. All right. I think this one was actually towards the end, but... And indeed, I will ask on my own account here an idle question. Which is better, cheap happiness or exalted sufferings? Well, which is better? 
which is better? That is a good question. <laughs> I came up with it. <laughs> I think it's exalted sufferings, right? That's what a deep person would say. <laughs> well, Tim. <laughs> You're talking to Brian here. I'm as deep as they come. What was the first option before exalted Cheap sufferings? happiness. I mean, I want to be happy. Shoot. So you'd rather just have run-of-the-mill, like, just your standard little happiness over here? Or would you like to be able to say that you have exalted sufferings, to which I interpret as you've gone through stuff akin to Job from the Bible and have come, like, and this is, maybe I'm reading into this a little bit too much, but I would assume that you get recognized or you come through the other side. Yeah. But, but that doesn't necessarily is what he's meaning. Exalted sufferings could be extraordinary sufferings that you alone are handling that no one else knows you're handling. Exalted is leaves a lot of room for interpretation. It does. Yeah. Yes. I mean, would I love, rather have a decent life here than be like, <laughs> be miserable in Siberia? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'd rather be here. Right. So that's a good question. I think you would do. I think I would too. It came down to it. I know. I would take cheap <laughs> happiness. I think we'd all take cheap happiness, right? Yeah. But I think that's his point. Is that? Is that would not be? I think that's the whole point of this whole argument he's making. Is that cheap happiness would not be enough for us? If we attained cheap happiness, we would still yet sabotage ourselves or desire something else. There's always something else. The grass is always greener on the other side. I think that's the... Is that the sum of this book? Grass is always greener. The end. Right? Feels like a simplistic uh, interpretation. My next quote is rather long, so you can... All right, I'll do one. He's talking about how he would feel miserable sometimes. And uh, he says, This was a regular martyrdom, a continual intolerable humiliation at the thought, which passed into an incessant and direct sensation that I was a mere fly in the eyes of all this world. A nasty, disgusting fly. More intelligent, more highly developed... More refined in feeling than any of them, of course. But a fly that was continually making way for everyone, insulted and injured by everyone. Yeah. And you know what I really liked? <laughs> it was that whole uh, <laughs> that whole scene about him and the officer, like you mentioned, where he, he plans this whole thing about going down the street. And <laughs> when the officer walks up to him, he would always go to the other side. Mm-hmm. And so he develops this whole plan about how he's going to stand his ground. He's not going to move. And then he always ends up moving until finally it comes to him just like collapsing. Or like they bump shoulders, right. I think. And that was like a big win for him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like a funny part yes. to me. And I think that quote you read is almost like a messiah complex that he has. It's like he's so much exalted and better, far intelligently superior, but yet he is a fly, nasty little thing in society that society would rather see swatted away. Yeah, well, it's kind of contradictory. It's like mm-hmm. you think of yourself as this great person, but then, yeah, you're being treated by, as a fly by everything. But I think he views his difference as his greatness. He is not a sheep. He is not one of these the rest of society that march in step to everyone's norms and expectations. It sounds like a school shooter manifesto or something. <laughs> it kind of does. Yeah. It kind of does. It's, it's, it's so as, angsty. As sad as it, yeah, as that observation is, it kind of does. Um, 
Or maybe it reminds me of somebody else that is in the White House. Oh, my God. I mean... Because here's my quote. Okay, go ahead. All right, this is a longer one, so settle in. Man is stupid, you know, phenomenally stupid. Or rather, he is not at all stupid, but he is so ungrateful that you could not find another like him in all creation. I, for instance, would not be in the least surprised if all of a sudden, apropos of nothing, in the midst of general prosperity, a gentleman with an ignoble, or rather with a reactionary and ironical countenance were to arise, and putting his arms akimbo, say to all of us, I say, gentlemen, hadn't we better kick over the whole show and scatter rationalism to the winds, simply to send these logarithms to the devil and to enable us to live once more at our own sweet foolish will? That again would not matter. But what is annoying is that he would be sure to find followers, such is the nature of man, and all that for the most foolish reason, which, one would think, was hardly worth mentioning, that is, that man everywhere and at all times, whoever he may be, has preferred to act as he chose, and not in the least as his reason and advantage dictated. So there we go. That's so... my quote to counter your argument. <laughs> this is him saying that man always prefers to act as he chose, and not in least in his, as his reason and advantage dictate. And, and to me, that just reminds me of Trump, because mm. this whole... Hadn't we better kick over the whole show and scatter rationalism to the winds and just and then, you know, upheave the whole system and uh, and you know drain the swamp and do all this other stuff and and so, people will follow him because there's always people out there willing to just do as he chose. So is Dostoevsky anti-rationality, anti-reason, just follow your impulses? I don't think so. I think he is using that as an extreme. I think th I think that's why the narrator is this extreme uh, and underground person that I think Dostoevsky is using him to highlight the fact that man desires free will that, and will always find ways... Well, <sighs> We are governed by our impulses. Correct. Yeah. And everyone, like the Enlightenment idea is that we are rational fundamentally mm. and um and he's pushing back on that i mean that's so maybe maybe you're right maybe you're maybe he is anti-rationalism yeah because you think about uh and then with all this research in the last 20 or so years with mm -hmm. behavioral economics is also pushing back on the whole people are rational like consumers right. theory because really we buy things and do things sometimes that don't make sense mm. but we do them anyway right right because we have certain biases, certain heuristics, ways of thinking that lead us to certain behaviors mm -hmm. that are not rational. Right, and I think that I think that's spot on, Tim. That that we are learning more and more about just how irrational humans are, mm. and so we should recognize that and not let our emotions carry mm, us away. Yes, when it I comes like to voting, and decisions. making decisions. Yeah. yeah. Can I do one more quote? Oh, just absolutely. Based on kind of going off that. Um, this is my last one. You can one. do more if you want. That was my last one. Right. So he says, uh, reason is an excellent thing. There's no disputing that. But reason is nothing but reason and satisfies only the rational side of man's nature. While will is a manifestation of the whole life. That is, of the whole human life, including reason and all the impulses. And although our life in this manifestation of it is often worthless, yet it is life and not simply extracting square roots. Ah, 
So I think that sums it up really well. Yeah. And I have nothing more to say. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I liked it. I mean, it's not my favorite book. Uh, but it was nice and short. And I thought it was an easy read. Yeah. it could. If you're interested in, like, existential, existentialism, it's probably worth reading. But Which the, I am. Yeah. yeah. So, But for so, the general person, you could probably pass. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. But, all right. Do you want to get rating time? Sure. What are you going to rate it? Three. Three. That's my rating, too. That's I'm fair. copying you this time. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> it's okay. But no, like, I thought, you know, I mean, I wanted to like it more. But yeah, I just I just didn't, the characters is not likable. To me, it um, felt like if he had gone with the first half and made that a whole book and made it less, like, intellectually arrogant, mm. then it could have been good. And then if he took the second half and drew that out more and added more story, that could have been good. But he kind of tried to have this hybrid, where it was never really one or the other. He tried to do a little bit of both, and it just seemed a little forced. To but me. I think like that's all you needed. I think like this. I felt like I got a good glimpse of what of who this narrator was as a person and and his kind of mindset. And you know, in the so in the first half, he explicitly says what he's thinking, and in the, in the second half, he we go through everyday instances of his life where he uses his philosophy in real life to just be a, a total nutcase and so i feel like if there was more to it i don't feel like it would be adding much more to the overall story mm-hmm. i mean i understand it's you know yeah i might leave a little something wanting but i felt like this was enough for me to understand or try to understand the main character and realize his point of view yeah i'm just saying it felt like two different books sure. thrown together a sure. bit and as someone who feels like he overthinks things or has in the past, like this guy really took it to the next level. Right. So you see, Tim, you're not that bad. No, yeah. He needs, he needs to get out of his head for sure. Just like take a long walk, maybe go for a run. Yeah. Oh. Get that runner's high. Yeah, right. Theodore. All right. Yeah, Theodore. What's our next book? I don't know, Tim. You picked our next book. Did I? Yeah. Oh, Why Do We Sleep? Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I think. Oh. I've heard a lot of good things. It's got really good reviews. It's a newer really? book. Okay. And um, how many hours of sleep do you get at night? Well, that's an interesting question because I have a Fitbit. Oh, you wear that at night? I do. And I don't trust my Fitbit because it says like you're awake for an hour each night. It senses if you toss and turn. I yeah, think. but like I am like completely out. Like I have no... Like, I slept last night, and I don't I have no memory until, like, 6.30 when I first woke up. You should film yourself sleeping and see if you really toss and turn. Right. So, I mean, I get from head down to the pillow to head off the pillow, I mean, seven, seven and a half. That's pretty good. I think so. That's about my average. Yeah. Um, but so if it only says I get, like, six, six and a half. Does that ever hurt your wrist to wear all day? I feel like I get It sometimes Bluetooth. gets annoying, but you have a smartwatch now, don't yeah, you? Yeah, but like, I feel like there's you some kind of off? Bluetooth feeling that's like, causes a little ache I or know. something. I don't know. Maybe I've just gotten used to it. Yeah. Yeah. It should be a good episode. We'll probably learn I some good so. things and I sleep more so. often. I mean, to me, this was when you, you gave me no warning about this book and I was like, oh, why do we sleep? What? <laughs> But anyway, we can get into it more next time. You can save your complaining for that. I know. I'll read it first before my, <laughs> No I, judgments. Yeah. Let's be rational no people judgments. here. No. Reason and rationality. Two and two else. make five. 
right. follow the logarithms. Okay. All right. Until next time. Keep reading. Keep reading.